Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Take a moment now to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along. The readings will also be on the screen behind me. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them, stayed in Gebar of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah, to the land of Shuol. Another company turned towards Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looked down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare 
his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there were neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, had his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Vivian. You may be seated. Well, again, welcome to the Parks Church. So glad that you are here with us. Um, if you're new with us, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way through First uh, and Second Samuel, um, even during this, this Advent season. And it's, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit will tie all of these things together, even as we're taking uh, chapters like First uh, Samuel chapter 13, or last week as we took uh, 10, 11, 12, right? Three chapters and, and looked at them. Um, I do want to make one announcement just about Christmas Eve. Uh, for those of you that missed our, our video announcements, that we'll be having two services in here, 3.30 and 5, uh, two Christmas Eve services. The last two years, we've actually done them outside, one large one on the square, uh, but this side, we're moving them in, right? Weather, we don't want any of that stress, so we, we're going to move those inside, and uh, it is just a fun time together as a faith family, and so this is a great opportunity to bring friends, family, and uh, we have one agenda. Again, it's the same agenda we do here on Sunday mornings. Um, uh, that, that Jesus is lifted up in, on Christmas Eve, that the gospel is going forth, and uh, we have a lot of fun doing it. The kids help us out, and, and, and so there's a lot of just great elements at Christmas Eve. So I just want to invite you specifically for that. We'll be talking about it uh, in the upcoming weeks as well. All right, so 1 Samuel 13, we are going to cover the whole uh, chapter. I'm going to leave some of it on the end uh, for next week, and so I won't get to all those verses on the end uh, this week. But 1 Samuel chapter 13 um, what we have seen is a reoccurring theme, and this is no different from last week, uh, that what appears on the surface is not actually the reality of what's going on. If you remember from last week, the last three chapters that we, the three chapters we dealt with last week, um, on the surface uh, was full of victories and successes, right? King Saul, who was anointed and coronated as, as king, it seems that things are working really, really well with him. Things are going correctly, right? Israel, the nation is going like, listen, we chose, we chose the right guy. We were right in going, listen, we want a king like the other nations, and look how it's working out for us. And if you remember in typical pastoral fashion, Samuel rolls up on the scene in chapter 12 and kind of throws a wet blanket over it. It is like, hey, listen, yeah, I know you're celebrating, I know you're at the height of victory, right? Because the Ammonites had just been defeated in chapter 11, uh, but let me tell you this. You've done a lot of evil, and in fact, this king who you think is going to lead you to victory is not. He's not who you think he is, right? And you're not who you think you are either. And, uh, and so this morning um, gives way to the clarity around Samuel's words, gives clarity to what Samuel was actually speaking about to the Israelites. And and again, Samuel in this chapter brings it back to reality and gives us the same warning that he gave last week. Be careful that you don't jump to the wrong conclusions with your short-sightedness. Now, chapter 13, if, if I'm being honest, it's, it's hard to hear. It's hard because like, we just came out of this successful time and yeah, Samuel had some harsh words, but, but it really brings clarity. As hard as it is, it really brings clarity. And so I want to back up just a little bit. Actually, I want to back up really far here in a second. But I want to back up to chapter 11. And so if you have your Bible, look at chapter 11. 
the group of people or the tribe or the, the nation that was defeated there was a nation called the Ammonites. They had a king. And 1 Samuel chapter 11 tells us the name of the king there. The name of the king is Nahash. Okay, you say, Kyle, why is that a big deal? Well, that's a big deal because the name Nahash means this, snake or serpent, right? And if you recall from last week, Saul's task or duty given by God was to defeat the Philistines. This was prior chapters where it says, your king, what he's going to do is he's going to go to battle against the Philistines. If you're with us last week, Saul missed his opportunity. He didn't actually defeat the Philistines when they were right there in striking distance. And he said, instead, he went and he attacked the Ammonites when he was asked. And he defeated Nahash the king, the snake king. Now, here's where I want to go way, 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 way back to the first book of your Bible. And some of you, maybe already the little gospel bells are going off. That after Adam and Eve fall in the garden, God says in Genesis chapter uh, 3, verse 15, that the new Adam, right, would be the one who crushes the head of the serpent, right? As they fall to the lie of the snake, he says, listen, out of Eve, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between, your, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's saying that to the serpent, that there's coming a day where the snake crusher, the true king, will rise up and he will crush your head, Satan. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Israelites thinking, our king just defeated Nahash, the snake. Don't think that these bells were not going off in their minds thinking, wait a minute, is this the one? Is this the one that God was talking about in the garden? My kids have a book, and the title of the book is uh, The Biggest Story. And the subtitle is, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. And you have to think in Israel if they're going, did you just see that victory in chapter 11? How he defeated the, the, the snake king? You see, it looks on the surface, Saul might be this new Adam who will crush the snake. But instead of reversing Adam's pattern in his behavior, Saul in turn, what we will see, repeats the behavior in sin of Adam. Let me be very clear with the conclusion of this sermon today. God's king will crush the snake. And that ultimate king is not Saul. That ultimate king is not even David, the one who will come, who Jesus comes through his line. We are going to see this very, very clearly today. However, we are all very vulnerable to trusting in lowercase k kings. Kings that we think have crushed the head of the serpent. And so we're going to walk through this scene in 1 Samuel chapter 13 today. In verses 1 through 7, the first picture that we get is this unresolved Philistine problem. This is who Saul was to deal with. This is who he, he, he missed the opportunity last week that we talked about. To lead Israel against their main enemy. And the beginning of this chapter with the Philistines rising up is not a surprise. It highlights a deeper problem, right? And what happens? It in turn doesn't end up with Saul defeating the Philistines here. Who is it? Look at it in your Bible. Jonathan led them in a battle against the Philistines. And you'll see that. Who's Jonathan? Jonathan is Saul's son. 
Now, let me make a point here. This is just kind of a technical note on chapter 1 for those of you who have different translations. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he reigned for two years over Israel. That's like, what is that saying? And some of you in your translations puts like numbers in there, like his age, like he was age 30. Well, here's the problem. In the original text, like there's essentially just like a line there. It's as if the author was going to come back and fill it in later. And so these translations are meant to give us kind of this time frame, but it's really unknown how old Saul is here. We can make some judgment because his son Jonathan is old enough to lead an army, right? To lead troops, okay? And so Jonathan here is the one who actually fulfills what his father was meant to do, which we'll we'll get to in a a few weeks, really uh, talking about that. But this issue with Jonathan going out really just stirs up the larger group of the Philistines, right? It pokes the hornet's nest. And the Bible here uses some interesting language in verse 5. So while Israel has 3,000 men, troops at this point, how many does it say in verse 5 that the Philistines have, this hornet's nest? It says 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Where have you heard that phrase used before? Like the sand on the seashore. Abraham. Your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore used for pro-God's people. Now, we're seeing it used against God's people. The Philistines are like the sand on the seashore. This is a big problem. And just as convinced as Israel was and Saul prior to these victories and these successes and on the surface, we are winning, we are winning. Just as quick they appear in chapter 13 to run. To run when things get really hard. To run when they hear this army of thousands and thousands of men coming. That's the scene here. There is this turmoil now. There is this angst. And and the author, I think, purposely does this. He takes us from victory to struggle really quickly so that you and I really find out where the nation is. Where is the nation really? Where is Saul really at? Is he really the snake crusher? And then verses 8 through 10, Saul brings matters into his own hands. You see, there was an obvious agreement between Saul and Samuel before they would go out in battle. And that agreement was this, that that Samuel would make offerings, would make sacrifices, would, would do these things before they went out seeking the Lord, before they went out to battle. And only a priest could offer a sacrifice. But what happens here in this scene? In haste, Saul offers the sacrifice because Samuel is late. And so let's, let's, let's get into the scene. And I love preaching through narratives because we can actually get into the scene. And so Saul, imagine what he's seeing with his eyes. Men are leaving, right? His 3,000-man army goes down to 600. People are hiding in caves. They're hiding in all these places. More ground is being taken by the enemy, by the Philistines. And Saul gets impatient, and he takes matters into his own hands. That's what the scene paints here. Look at verse 8. He waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, here we go, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offerings. Big problem. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. As soon as 
as Saul rushed into this disobedient act, Samuel shows up. And by the way, let me just make this note. Samuel was late according to Saul's timetable. Samuel didn't roll up on like day 14 and was like, yeah, I know I was supposed to be here at day seven, but Saul was nervous. Saul was impatient. And so at the moment on that seventh day, at the earliest hour, I imagine, where he goes, listen, let's just do it. Let's just bring it. Samuel's not coming. He makes these offerings. And then on the seventh day, listen, we know that on the seventh day, Samuel actually shows up. And when Samuel rolls up after all these offerings, here's this question. What have you done? What have you done? Now back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve partake of the fruit. Do you remember another question? Right? What happens? They believe, believe the lie of the enemy. They take of the fruit. And then what do they realize? They realize they're naked. So they go hide themselves. Remember, they had just enjoyed fellowship with God, been walking with him in this communion. And then they go hide themselves and God, listen, God doesn't ask a question because he doesn't know the answer. He asks a question for our sake, all right? And he says to Adam, where are you? Where are you? This scene is meant to mirror the garden. This scene is meant to mirror that Genesis 3, this, this idea of Adam 2.0 happening again in disobedience and in haste. And so Samuel comes onto the scene and he asks the question, what have you done? In verses 11 and 12, what rolls out of Saul's mouth? Excuses, right? And let's not be too hard on Saul because the reality is in this scene, we are not Samuel, we're not Jonathan, we're Saul. Saul responds with excuses. He points to the Israelite men for leaving him. He points to the Philistines for showing up. He blames Samuel, right? Samuel for not showing up on time. You see, Saul is not the snake crusher. Saul is the excuse maker, just like Adam in the garden. Do you remember after the question? Where are you? They come out from their hiding clothed. And he was like, who, who told you you were naked? What have you done? Do you remember Adam's response? Genesis 3, verse 12. And the man said, The woman who you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Like, y'all, this is our heart. This is our bent. This is who we are since the garden. And Saul is just proving this true. A nation who thought, this is our guy, this is our king, victory after victory after victory. And Samuel's going, be careful, because what you see on the surface is not the reality. Let me show you his heart. You see, Saul's impatience was an indicator of something so much deeper. Your impatience, my impatience is an indicator of something so much deeper. And what is that deeper thing? Here it is, an ultimate rejection of God. You want to know the pattern of sin? You want to know the anatomy of what sin looks like in all of our lives? Here's what it is. We feel pressure. The pressure, pressure maybe of a situation around us, a person around us, right? Whatever that may be, we feel this pressure. We struggle to see a way out. We struggle to see hope. 
We struggle to see victory. That causes short-sightedness. That is the anatomy. That is the anatomy of all sin right there. Pressure, loss of vision, short-sightedness. And what happens in our hearts when that short-sightedness occurs? We begin to feel anxious. We begin to get like Saul, and you can imagine him in the scene going, when's he going to get here? People are fleeing. People are hiding. My nation is dissolving, right? The Philistines are pressing in with the number of soldiers like sand on the seashore. Where are you, Samuel? Where are you, God? John Bloom, he's an author that writes. What author doesn't write, right? Um, (laughs) That's good. It's deep. Take that one. Put that in your notebook. He said this, he said, we obey what we fear most. We obey what we fear most. What does Saul fear most here? Saul felt like there was no other option. I've got to go ahead. I've got to make these these offerings. And so he says even in verse 12, look at the language that he uses in verse 12. He says this, he says, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have, I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So he's going, listen, Saul, I haven't done this. I need to do this before I fight the Philistines. And he says, so I forced myself. Samuel, I forced myself to do this. Now, this could be read one of two ways. One, he's being kind of sarcastic and a jerk, okay? Which maybe wouldn't be out of character for Saul, but I think it's actually genuine. He's going, Samuel, look, because of all these things on the exterior, because of all these pressures, all the things that are happening to me, here's the deal. I didn't want to do this, but I forced myself genuinely, sincerely to make these offerings because I had no other option. You see, you can genuinely and sincerely sin. You can genuinely and sincerely act unfaithfully. Listen, just because something that you do is genuine or sincere does not equal faithful obedience, right? Just like I said last week, just because something is working on the exterior does not always equate internal faithfulness. Sincerity and genuineness. I believe Saul is being genuine. He was doing a genuine act. However, it was disobedient. It was not following what the Lord had commanded. This was what we have called before justified disobedience. Samuel, was I not justified to make the offering? You were late. People are scattering. The Philistines were mounting up. I am justified in doing this, right? I guess I could have not done the offering and just went to battle. Justified disobedience. Some of you, you're living in your life right now with justified disobedience. You're going, well, my spouse isn't giving me what I need, so I seek it here. Well, they, they hurt me first. You see, this bitterness, this unforgiveness that I'm carrying, Kyle, you don't know the root of that. And in many ways, you're right. You're just, you were hurt. You do have that pain. Your spouse isn't fulfilling maybe their side of the covenant. However, That is not an allowance for you to live in sin. 
That is not an open door for disobedience, as genuine or as sincere as you may be, as justified as you may be, right? Maybe for some of you, the justification is going, I'm young. I'm I'm just a high schooler, right? Maybe the justification is, no one is hurt by this. You ever used that one before? It's only afflicting pain here. Or maybe some of you, the justification of sin as well. I had too much to drink. A little close home, maybe? So I said that. And you know it's sin, you know it's wrong, but your justification goes back to something in doing something you know you shouldn't have ever done. This is Saul pouring out justified excuses, justified disobedience on display. Why? Because he felt like there was no other option. Why? Because this is the pattern of sin. Pressure, conflict, struggling to see a way out, leading to short-sightedness, leading to fear. And we'll obey what we fear most. And so Saul did. And then in verses 13 through 15, we get Samuel's rebuke in the reality of the situation. Samuel then informs Saul, in light of his impatience, in light of his disobedience, the kingdom will be taken from him and his family. Isn't this interesting? Like if, you, if you go back in chapter 12, there was an opportunity for Saul. And Samuel gave it to him. There was an opportunity for the nation of Israel. He says, listen, if you will follow the Lord, he will bless you. If you'll follow the commandments of God, if you'll not reject the way of God, listen, he will bless you. He will be for you what you want to be. He will be for you what you need. And this act of impatience costs Saul the whole kingdom, severing his line. Now, I have a question here. Does that seem a little severe? Like, does this seem like the penalty doesn't match the offense to anyone else? Like, he was impatient. He was hasty. Like, what, what, what? Shall we line up David's sins against this? Which I'll talk about in a little bit. And look at it here in the text in verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he had commanded you. Like for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. There it is again. If you would have followed the Lord, if you would have followed his command, he would have established your kingdom forever. However, you have chosen foolishly. Now, to our modern ears, the word fool or foolish might seem a little harsh for somebody who is just impatient. Psalm 14.1 talks about the fool like this. It says this, he says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Leave that there. I think when we think of the idea of a fool... Or, or, or somebody who is saying there is no God, we think of it more in terms of the mind or the mouth. 
Here the Bible is very clear where the problem is. It's not in your mind and it's not in your mouth. It's in the source. And the source is where? The heart. The seat of where everything in us flows. Our thoughts, our words, it flows from our heart. So here it is. The fool says in their heart there is no God. So here's what this looks like practically. It looks like you live as if there is no God at all. It's look at, it, it looks like this practically in your life and my life, as if no orchestration of what we do or what we say or what we think is around anything except ourselves. That's a fool. And so what the Bible does is it takes a fool and it puts on the other side of it the opposite, someone who lives in wisdom. Now, wisdom is a person, the Bible says. And that person is one who has a deep understanding, not just mentally, but in their heart, of what's really going on around them. Wisdom is someone who can actually see what's going on. And so let me tell you, Saul is foolish and Samuel calls him on it because he, what Samuel thinks, or what Saul thinks is this, what he's done is just a small offense. This isn't that big of a deal. I needed to do this. I'm justified in doing this. And the real work of wisdom, hear me, is this, that it's long, it takes a long time, it's disciplined, and it's incredibly hard, slow work. But Saul, what is he about? He's about quick, he's about expedient, he's about the next answer, the next victory, whatever's before him, he's going to take it no matter what. Listen, that is the epitome of a fool. Why does this sin seem so small to us? Impatience. And I've heard this said before. Let me guess. You struggle with patience. What about the bigger sins? Oh, you, yeah, you, you, you struggle with whatever, and that's a small. What about the bigger ones? Let me pause right here. John Wesley, um, he had written in the margins of his Bible uh, this question. He says, is there such a thing as a little sin? And below it, he wrote his answer. And the answer he wrote below that is, only if there is such a thing as a little God. You see, we tend to categorize sin as small or large, significant or insignificant. I mean, who who would put murder or stealing in the same boat as lying and gossip? And what Wesley says is all sin ultimately must be equal because they are all a front against God. And God is not small at all. Hear me, church. All sin is a rejection of God being God. From the garden with Adam to you and I today. You see, that obviously there are some bigger earthly consequences, some that are more heinous here on earth, but ultimately all sin at the root level is the same. The same thing Saul was doing, rejecting God. You see, Israel, the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel has been on the trajectory of making their own destiny, taking it into their own hands, not following the commands of God, not listening to the man of God, Samuel, before them. Ultimately, what is this? Rejecting God. And Samuel sees this rejection of God happening along the way. And hear, hear me, like hear the love of God from chapter 12 last week. He warns them, Hear the love of God. Even in this passage today, he warns them again as a nation. He even warns Saul again as a nation. Now back to David. You're like, now David, those were some big sins. 
You want to know the difference with David? David did not excuse his sins away. David used language like this from Psalm 51. He says this, and this is after his most famous sin, if you will. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sins is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. There it is. You see, David gets it. He primarily sinned against God. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being and you teach me, oh, there it is, wisdom in the secret heart. Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. Whether it's this sin or any other one, David would confess that to be true. And he goes, but Lord, you in your grace and your mercy, you're teaching me wisdom. You see, David is going to be a man after God's own heart. A man not perfect, no way. But a man with wisdom. You see, in this scene, we see Saul moving ahead of God getting out in front, trying to manipulate the situation possibly. And isn't it interesting in this, this offering scene, this act of disobedience is disguised as an act of worship. God, why are you upset here? He's making an offering. This is so sneaky. This sin wraps itself up in an act of worship. Saul's going much like chapter, I believe it's three or four, where the Israelites were using the Ark of the Covenant, right, as a commodity. Saul's going, this is going to guarantee us a victory. I'm not going into battle without this. And so in haste, he makes this decision. You see, this act of worship becomes not about the Lord, but about securing a victory. Not about bringing petitions before God and incense and an offering before the Lord. This becomes about Saul himself. He said, Kyle, how do you know that? Well, if Saul would have really been about the favor of God, if he really would have longed for the favor of God to be in this situation, he would have waited. He would have waited on God's order. He would have waited on the commands and the way that God placed them. Let me tell you, many of you, you're in that waiting season for whatever that is. And you have a decision. You can act or you can listen. You can maybe move ahead of God or you can wait and go, Lord, is this what you want? Is this how you're leading me to act? You, said, you see, with Saul here, instead of living in fear of God, Saul lives in fear of the Philistines. Preoccupied with the Philistines, Saul forgot God. He forgot what he had been anointed to do. And from now on, in 1 Samuel, we'll be reading a story about a dismantling king and kingdom. And I'm just going to tip my hand a little bit. It will have very little to do with the Philistines. 
and so much to do, almost everything to do with the issues from within. Inside Saul, inside the nation. I love Eugene Peterson. I've, I've made that known throughout the series. But in his commentary on 1 Samuel, he says this. He has this, this one line. He says, the inner world of obedience to God is far more real than the outer world of war. Not that that outer world of war is not real. Not that the Philistines were some imaginary army that weren't pressing against him. It was very real that the Israelites were scattering into caves. But what was more real was the internal life, the inner life of Saul had no root. It had withered away. It had rejected God and pursued something else. Protection, victory, power, his position as king, those were the things motivating Saul. Not a fear. Not the fear of the Lord. And so let me end here. There's so much going on in these chapters. I love talking to some of you after last week's, and it was just like, what, what was happening? What is going on? There's so much happening in these passages that if we just read them for the first time or on the surface, we'll miss it. Our lives are like that. Hear me, laser in here. Our lives are like that. Our sin is like that. If we just view it on the surface, we might miss what's really going on. It takes pause. It takes the hard work of slowing down and allowing the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to take us to the deep places of conviction and confession and repentance so that we might experience the deep grace and deep mercy and deep love of the Father. You see, that's the only source of wisdom, guys. One author, he writes it like this. He says, Israel's new start with a new king has floundered because the underlying unbelief and disobedience of humanity and Adam has not changed. We need a king who will not only rescue us from our enemies, but also from ourselves. We need a king who can take on sin and liberate us from our slavery to our sinful desires. We need a king who obeys God in all circumstances, even when put under pressure of unfavorable circumstances. Saul is not that man. His kingdom will not endure, for it cannot. But there is a king. There is a king who has come. There is a king by which his kingdom will have no end. Listen, this is the prophecies that we read about during this Christmas season, right? Where it says where the government will be upon his shoulders and the rule of his kingship will have no end. That's talking about not Saul, we know that, not David, but the one who will come from David's line, Jesus. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want us to just pause for a minute. It would be really uh, arrogant of us to talk about pausing and listening and not actually do it this morning. Because some of you, I think, are running your lives thinking that you are following in faithful obedience. And the Lord, maybe on the surface it looks like that. 
Maybe you're doing some good Christian things. Maybe you're showing up at the right spaces and the right places, but God is trying to slow you down to speak, to illuminate those inner places, those deep places that he's trying to get at. Those places where you have justified disobedience, where you're disobeying the Lord, but you're giving the list of excuses like Saul. For others of you, you have a decision ahead of you. And the Lord this morning is causing you to push pause. Pause to listen to his voice. I love what Jesus says in the Gospels. He says, I I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to. Can you imagine a life like that? Like there's nothing that I do unless the Lord leads me to do it. What would your life look like? For others of you, you have been running from God. You've been going the other direction for whatever reason, right? And maybe you're not even willing to confess that, but in this space, in this place, you know that to be true. And this morning, God, in his love and his kindness, is drawing you back to himself. And the gospel is this, that we're not saved, we're not redeemed by King Jesus based upon our works, based upon our church attendance, based upon our, the, our nonprofits that we nothing like that. We are redeemed by King Jesus through his grace and his mercy alone, and he's offering that to you this morning. And the ultimate rejection of God is the rejection of his son, the rejection of that grace and that mercy. And this morning again, is that invitation for you. And so let us pause. Um, Host, you can come up front, not dismiss the aisles yet, but host, come up front for communion. And actually, Paul tells us to do this before we come to these tables. Right? Don't take these elements in an unworthy fashion, he says. Think about your inner life. Think about what's going on in your heart of hearts. Don't be hasty, church. Don't be presumptuous just to think because you showed up today, heard a sermon, and sang a few songs that you're all good. Let's let the Holy Spirit speak. Let's listen to him this morning. And so let's do that right now, church. Holy Spirit, continue to speak to our hearts continue to press the love of Jesus into us, the grandeur of our salvation. God, I pray that that, the cross by which we are saved would grow large. Father, I pray even as we approach these tables, your Holy Spirit would still be leading us and guiding us and moving in us. God, that we would not take these elements in an unworthy fashion but we take them worthy because Christ has called us worthy. Lord, for those running from you, God, I pray that they would return. I pray this morning would be a morning of salvation, that these elements would be taken with a new heart, a new name, a new identity, a son or a daughter. So Lord, continue to do this as we come to these tables, not flippantly, but reverently, and seriously in celebrating. Host, lead us to these tables.